Good evening and welcome to Horror. I'm Lee. I'm Chris. I'm Adam. And I'm Jennifer. Yay! We're all here again. Lockdown, Jennifer can't escape, so we've got her on the podcast. That's it, I couldn't find any excuse today, you know, I've done all the cleaning. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it, it was, e- it was either this or face death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is the other reason I'm in here. We've got a fire on in this room, so it's a good oh, place to be enough. sat at the moment. You're basically like the cat then. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm in, the, yeah. I'm in the warmest house, in the warmest room in the house. And talking of cats, what did I watch last night? Cats, the stage show, not the terrible film, the stage show. Have you so seen the film though? We watched about 15 minutes of it and when James Corden came on was when I really, really had to stop. Mm. I mean, for someone who That's loves the That's usually my response shows, to him. Yeah, it was just it just made no sense, even though I know that it does make sense on the stage. And so, we were drunk, and we still couldn't yeah. just tolerate it in any no, way, shape, or form. It was not amusing, even, or you know, we could see no benefit to watching the rest of it, which is terrible, really, because all those famous people in it, I feel a bit sad. Did he not look nice as a cat then? Um, I just did we, that not improve him? No, well, yeah, true, yeah, no, that all the actors were improved by being cats. <laughs> And the songs are gash. I just want to say well, that no, as well. Like no, that's what it's totally the same songs. So I do not agree with that. Gash. However, on the stage mm-hmm. show, you've got actual dancers and actual singers doing it, singing and dreadful performing songs, performing rather than actors who I'm sure can dance and sing, but not quite in the same way. That makes sense. Mm. Mm, yeah. well, anyway. It's probably it probably is probably easier to emote as a cat when you're dressed as a cat. Rather mm-hmm. than in a motion capture suit covered in balls, yeah. Yeah. Think, in front yeah. of a green screen <laughs> well, with similarly clad other people, we'll let them especially, off a bit then. especially when you turn around and it's like, oh Christ, there's James Cole. <laughs> Sorry, I signed up for cats, not twats. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> um, mm. yes. So, as previously discussed, uh, we have watched Hellraiser this evening. Um, I can't quite remember why I've decided to do this this evening. It's because the TV show. Yes, you, that's right. You've seen a thing, yeah. That was it, it was two weeks ago, I forgot. Um, and on that note, we'd just like to say a massive thank you for, to everyone who joined us last week for yeah. our live Zoom chat, catch-up, uh, drink-a-thon uh, evening, which was banging. I had a really good time. I think it should have been sponsored by Brewdog. <laughs> there was a lot of brood of drinking and talk I've got to admit uh, so yeah you'd have been proud Jennifer excellent Jennifer is back moving again which is why she's with us she's no longer in a crippled mess on the sofa mm. oh uh, yes although I did make the mistake of doing a bit more gardening today and then wishing I hadn't so it's dangerous game that gardening it is, it is a dangerous it pushes you over the edge before you know it but there we go she's got to keep on hacking can't stop Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on your garden, but you know. Well, yes. yeah. Luckily, it doesn't need too much hacking. It more needs bending mm. over, weeding, and that's the issue. You see, but there we go. Anyway, let's talk horror. Yes. So. Well, I, I have to say though, the Zoom, the, the Zoom meeting was great, and we would, we are hoping, we certainly would do it again. Definitely, mm-hmm. I think. And a big shout out to everyone who joined us: Alex, Adam, yep. Dean, Drew clear yeah. for a bit you know yeah. i think yeah. it was um 
yeah, it was it was rather good. It was it was great, and it was re- it felt really um, sort of informal and chatty and really yeah, like really nice. I, I just really enjoyed chat. it. Yeah, yeah. And loads of <laughs> one of those. It was, awesome. it was yeah. a nice night out to stay in with. Which, if anything, I think should continue long into <laughs> when uh, when we are released from lockdown. Well, everyone's avoiding uh, weather spoons, aren't they, when we get out? So, well, everyone's just—I would avoid them anyway. Well, well um, done. You're ahead of the crowd yeah. there. <laughs> well, it's not that. It's just I, I tend to avoid uh, certainly most pubs in Romford. I'd avoid just because I don't want to be raped by members of the West Ham United football team. <laughs> I watched something, it wouldn't, it wasn't quite horror related, but it did, it must have come up on the recommended um, list when I was adding some horror films. And I thought it looked like one that was, it, it interested me and I thought it was possible for me to watch it while the children were around. Mm-hmm. So I did with headphones on, but I figured it looked like there wasn't going to be too much bad stuff. I only had to turn my screen away a few times. Um, <laughs> And a bit, so yeah, it turned out it wasn't really horror, bit bit of thriller, bit weird stuff, but it was called Nothing Really Happens. And it's another one of those where every scene I was thinking, do I hate this? Do I love it? And the next scene would make me think, I love it. And then I wouldn't be sure again. In the end, there were enough quotes in it and enough ideas that I decided to get. That was really good. Um, I'll just read out a, a review from someone called Anton because I thought we summed it up quite well. In this no-budget labour of love, the banal, quotidian details of one man's life are both wryly observed and subjected to a hilariously wrong type of external manipulation, with the manipulator slowly coming to focus as the one with the real problems. I'm not entirely sure I understand, understood what it was about by the end, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I did find it quite entertaining throughout. So, uh, And I, hopefully I've not given anything away. You have not. No, no, not not even the slightest hint. (laughs) Similarly to what the film does, I think. But if any of you ever watch it, tell me what it was about. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Sounds interesting. What was it called again? Nothing really happens. Um, I'll just give you a slight intro. A film called Uh, that would not inspire me to want to rush out and see it. so, So it's one of those where the cover stood out to me, and you'll see if you look at it, and it definitely has a potential horror look to the cover, like it could be. Um, and uh, an intro is that it's about a mattress salesman. Hmm. And the start is a bit odd. But it's one of those where you think, are they trying to be a little bit too strange? You, you know how, say, the Mike Bush does it and does it fantastically. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you think they could have got it wrong, but I think they did well. Um, and I, I didn't know it was a no-budget film, so I think I did a good job with that as well. Okay. Mm, cool. Yeah. 
Sounds interesting. Like to look about. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Adam, did you watch anything? I've, yeah, I've watched a few things. Um, uh, I, I mentioned it on the I mentioned it on the Zoom meeting, but obviously um, I mentioned it sort of on on an episode. Uh, I watched uh, I watched the vampire film Bliss. Okay. Um, now I don't like to I don't really like to shit on things, but <laughs> I've it's actually. I'm going to have to use your terminology, Lee, as in uh, it's definitely a film filled with uh, people that you do not like. Okay. And I think that that loses its sort of ability to actually work. Um, short, long story short, there's a uh, an artist who is struggling with creative block, like a, a painter. Uh, she's struggling with creative block along which seems to have suspiciously coincided with her becoming sober uh and then she goes off on a massive drug bender and uh ends up accidentally becoming a vampire along the way oh dear and every i mean basically it's a film that i think i would have liked at 20 in in that i would have been going yeah that's right because i'm like that and i'm like a bohemian and i I go out and I and I do loads and I do drugs and stuff. Don't leave the house, but but in my head, you know, sort of like this bacchanalian figure. Um, And I would have thought it was uh, I would have thought it was absolutely brilliant at that point. At the age of forty-two, I just think they're a bunch of shallow, insufferable pricks. (laughs) And just and just go home to bed. It's. It also had a slight feeling of. It also had that element to it where, because sort of drugs played an important part in it, or sort of a made-up drug that could have been coke, but it was black cocaine, and they called it bliss. And so, cake then. Well, it, <laughs> it was a made-up drug. It's made in yeah, made up in. Uh, it's made in. Uh, uh, Lab- laboratories and everything, yeah. And that is Joss uh, Eklund's spunky backpack. Joss Eklund's spunky backpack, <laughs> uh, Russell Dust, um, yellow fashion joists. And, uh, <laughs> but, um, and I won't say about Hattie James. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, and, it, and, a, and a lot of people in it suffered from check neck. Um, <laughs> that actually turned out to be two holes. And I mean, it's like, a mate turned her into a vampire and then sort of was a bit, oh, maybe I did, maybe I didn't, and oh, what, you know, and so on and so forth. Then at the end of it, a mate started showing out and going, you can't go around LA just eating people, there are rules. And it's like, you wouldn't even fucking tell her if you were a vampire, the other fucking scene. <laughs> Women, so I just, Yeah, no, just everyone was an insufferable tosser in it. I think that's the problem. <laughs> right. So, Honestly, yeah. They were all uh, yeah. men and women. <laughs> Do you think it was aimed at teenagers? No, I think it was aimed at idiots. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, to be honest, sort of like some of the reviews I'd seen, I was like, oh, you know, that sounds intriguing because they said it was one of those things where they, you know, I'm quite happy a lot of the time to go with style over substance. But 
with this, the style was there, but the substance was just, well, it wasn't even substance abuse. It was just substance annoyance. <laughs> so, um, so Fair I think enough. I was just, yeah. So soundtrack's really fucking good. Like there's electric wizard on there and stuff like that. And the bloke nice. zombie did the score, which was again, one of the, which was the, one of the first reasons I'd heard about it. Uh, so yeah, brilliant album showing about the film. So that's the best way yeah, to put that. So you're right, IMDb, it's got a lot of uh, reviews and it's got a 5.8, which for me would imply that it's a good rating. But if it is only Nobby to a, uh, to a rating it, that doesn't necessarily give it an, any kind of stable yeah. place to start your judgment from, really. It's, that's the thing, is I'd heard, I'd heard mainly positive things about it. But in the end, I think it was just, it's, not, it's just not great. I think mm. that's the problem. And not only that, but also I think it's, I think it's also, we've, we've just watched fucking like, we've watched Near Dark. Yeah. You know, and stuff like that. And then it's like, oh crap, yeah, I do, I do know, it's like sort of a sudden horrible realisation. Oh yeah, there's a lot of shit vampire movies as well, weren't there? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't, it wasn't shit in the sense of like sparkling teenage romance crap, but it was a bit sort of like, that, that's the best way I can describe it, is it felt like something about drugs written by people who'd heard about drugs. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was like it was like a fifteen-year-old sort of writing about drugs, and they were all called, and it's like, and it's called like space zap, and uh, it makes your bum fall off, and you suddenly, <laughs> and your height heightens everything, and makes everything really cool, and it's like, yeah, piss off. So, <laughs> yeah. So, like I say, I just, I, I, it turns out not for me. I mean, it's fair, like, no, fair enough. So basically, kind of, the moral is: kids don't take drugs. Kids don't watch this film. <laughs> yeah, no, kids take drugs and ignore this film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the message that I'm leaving people with from it. I mean, it's it's shot okay, but like, yeah, dialogue's a bit rubbish. And frankly, do you remember Adam and Joe? Um, and there was they used to have Ken Corder, who was the filmmaker who would go off and do produce little films. And he actually did a film called uh, uh, Jamming on the Needle Bliss, um, which was like his Tarantino, druggy, London, train-spotting style film. Yeah, it felt a bit like that, oh. <laughs> if I'm honest. No. It looks, just looking at it, it looks quite a lot like, uh, like that Neon Demon that came out a few years ago that I, oh. I, everybody else was massively excited for and then just turned out to be a massive like two and a half hour music video with no story and no real substance to it whatsoever. I can honestly say I, I love the Neon Demon. And uh, of course you no, do. But style over this... speech, if you like that for style over substance and can't do this, this has got to be a fucking turd. That's what I mean. There's not, it's, not even, <laughs> it's, not, it's not good style. Oh. You know, it's Gamnam style. It's just... <laughs> it's just felt, it felt weirdly old. I think that's as well, you know, it's like sort of, oh, you know, what, you still put, people can still get paid for this sort of thing. <laughs> it's like being a, it's like being a, a BBC nonce. You think, oh no, that should have gone out years ago. Can't be <laughs> um, in other news, um, I've gone, on, I went on a bit of a, uh, a Clive Barker kick. So I watched the director's cut of Lord of Illusions, and yes, that, saw that, yeah, that is much improved hmm. for uh, for the director's cut because it was always a bit sort of like. Mm? It's okay, I suppose. Mm. 
Um, but they've actually added stuff in to... It's weird in that you find out that the majority of the cutscenes feature the main character. Ah. And you're like, oh, so that might be why this made sort of fuck all sense. Yeah. It's in that the main character, who the narrative is about, had lots of his scenes cut. <laughs> so... Um, and again, it is a salutary lesson. Let Clive Barker on his own. Because they Nightbreed bombed because the studio interfered. Lord of Illusions bombed because the studio interfered. And then he said he was never going to direct a film ever again. And his only, his only box office success, Hellraiser, uh, was the only one where he was allowed to do what he wanted, essentially. Or, you know, had, had the most control. No one stepped in and said, oh, you need a, you need a flying whistle in this bit. And how about this band comes in and does a song for you at that point or something <laughs> shit, you know? It's almost like this guy could, this guy's written us a success. So what we'll do is we'll hire him and tell him what to do. <laughs> you know, I don't like to do the noises, but, you know, if, if we're falling back. So this is what someone needs to come out and say to these people. Okay. So, right. I'll, well, well done, Adam, for saying it. Thank you. I watched the mid, and then I watched the Midnight Meat Train. Which, well, it's all right, isn't it? It's still just, not seen it. Oh, it's it's okay. And Vinnie Jones doesn't talk, so he's a believable uh, sort of monster killer, etc. Hmm. Uh, because if he'd have started talking, that would put that right out the window. Certainly for an audience, England. Uh, Bradley Cooper and his super duper pooper is in it. Before he was Bradley Cooper TM. Um, there's it's. It's all right, you know. It's not sort of. I, I'm glad I didn't pay for it. That's the best way I can say. Yeah. Is I just it was. Um, I think it was on film four, so I'd taped it ages ago. Hmm. Um, Probably in the eighties. Yeah. You taped it, Adam. Just, just about to say that. I was like, oh, yeah. When did you record? Oh no, I taped it. Yeah. Oh no, I literally taped it onto and the soundtrack I put onto wax cylinder. Nice. <laughs> uh, uh, but I was managed to sync it up quite nicely, and therefore it, it worked. Yeah. You didn't but, have to um, playing in the background on all them then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's okay if you can sort of. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, I prefer the short story, but that's pretty much always the case with most stuff that uh, Clive Barker adaptions that aren't actually anything to do with him. Other than as executive producer in inverted commas, i.e., I'm getting some cash out of this. Yeah. Um, so I watched that. I also watched um, uh, Dreamland, which mm-hmm. is the Pontypool oh. teams film. Yeah. Which is essentially, it's not a sequel to Pontypool, but it could well be a sequel to the weird end bit of Pontypool after the end credits. Is that, is that where it broadens it out, what you're saying? It's uh, the end credits of the, the after credits bit of Pontypool is where they go off into some weird Sin City looking mm. dreamscape where they're sort of talking nonsense. But both um, uh, Stephen McHattie and Lisa Hull, so um, Grant Mazzy and Sidney Breyer are in it their characters are now named the same as the characters were renamed at the end of Pontypool. And it is kind of like a weird film noir thing. Mm. But also Steve McHattie also plays a heroin addicted jazz trumpeter. Uh, Juliet Lewis eats the scenery 
and uh, is the Countess. It all takes place in some unnamed European city. Um, and she is the Countess, who is like the local bigwig, whose entire social circle is basically the cast of 120 Days of Sodom. Yeah. So it's... Um, and it's um, the... Uh, uh, her brother's a vampire, and when they say it in the film, you're like, all oh, right. And then he turns up and he's a vampire. You think it's like a, a term. You just think it's people yeah. saying, you think, oh, he's like, because he's horrible or he's like monstrous or whatever. No, he's a vampire. And um, is he's... Is he sparkle or is he more of a bitey, bitey blood? He's, he's basically, if Richard O'Brien had been in uh, What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, so he's, <laughs> he's a vampire. He's sort, sort of camp... Vaguely, a campire, yes. (laughs) But he is, but he and um, and Stephen Hattie, like I say, he plays a jazz trumpeter and a hitman who is uh, who is ordered to bring back the finger of the jazz trumpeter by his boss. His boss is Henry Rowlands, who is really fucking good in it as well. He's just like because he's like playing this big gang boss and. especially at one point where the vampire is very pissed off because his child bride has gone missing and uh, he sort of approaches Henry and he's going, no, you don't want me. I've got AIDS. (laughs) And so on and so forth. And it's weird. It's, it's all over the shop. Might not be to everyone's taste, but I fucking enjoyed it. It had, the best way I can describe it is, you know, that slightly off thing that you get with some comic strip films mm. like there's the one where there's a big shootout at a wedding and there's one where what is it the war the one that's just called war yeah and it's like set in the near future and it's just that slightly off because of the budget sort of feeling to it but no i, I enjoyed it but it's definitely not it's not in the league of pontypool because i think you just because, I mean, it's still Tony Berger's writing and, uh, oh, I can't think of his bloody name, uh, Steve, uh, no, McDonald's, Bruce McDonald uh, directing. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it is like a reunited, it's like the team have reunited, but it does feel, it's weird. It's like, it's like they've decided to do a sequel just to that last little bit, which is, I, I like that. I like the nicheness of that. Yeah, more than anything else. But it's 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 pretty good. I they released the soundtrack because that's jazzy and nice and sort of good. But yeah, so for people who maybe obsess over Pontypool, it might be a might be worth a watch. Um, but it's not one to necessarily rush to. Um, Definitely gone to the top of my watch list. I've got to say because it's it sounds intriguing and random enough. It's very, it's very random. Um, it's there's sort of elements to the Hitman story that are a bit Leon, um, and uh, amongst amongst all the weirdness and craziness, it's basically Henry Rollins's gangster has moved into child trafficking. So it's like sort of, it's just yeah, it has sort of oh, and anything there's a pawn shop in the film, and that's P A W N. Yeah. Anything that takes place in there is piss funny. <laughs> it's just really funny. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, well, uh, worth checking out. There are about eight other 
films called Dreamland. Uh, uh, so yeah, get the right get, one. Get, get the right one. Yes, yeah. but you, it'll be obvious because it's the one with Stephen McHattie and Henry Rollins and yeah, loads of people. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Um, Jennifer and I have watched a couple of films. Mm-hmm. Uh, one we're going to be covering uh, in a couple of episodes' time, so we won't be oh, yes. that one. Um, but we've also re well, oh, yeah, we did rewatch it because you had seen we it. But, um, we watched uh, Odd Thomas again, the Anton Yelchin film. Mm. Um, yeah, again, it, it came and went. Nobody really took any real attention, paid any real attention to it. Um, when was it out originally? Uh, so it was out. It's funny when we watched it the first time. Twenty thirteen. Yeah. So I, I didn't see it. There might be 2015-ish. I watched it probably four or five years ago. Um, yeah, and remembered very little about it. But yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it a second time. Yeah, it's quite good fun, horror, but not overly horror, really. Mm. But yeah, yeah, pretty family friendly. Well, not quite family no, yeah, friendly. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> not I was going to say what I've heard about it. Well, which family? family friends. Yeah, what kind of family? <laughs> Maybe Adam's family. <laughs> I think yeah, I think because it's got a lot of comedy and stuff in it, and some of it's think, quite. Yeah, still like the voices. You think yeah. it's quite good fun when you come away from it. <laughs> and then you show somebody else. Yeah, you show your they, brother. They're and... upset by it. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's a really good... Actually, I'm really surprised. It has got a 6.8 on IMDb. <gasps> Is that the same as Bliss? No, Bliss was 5.7. Oh, okay. That's all right then. So it has got, but this is out of forty six thousand reviews, which is quite impressive. But wow. it's got that high score. Um, was yeah. was Bliss out of two? The director and his mum. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, so Odd Thomas is a good one that, as I say, sort of went under the radar. It didn't really get noticed so much as I remember. Um, but yeah, really good film. Yeah. Mm. Enjoyed it. Go too far into that. Um, so. To head into the, Adam is grinning oh. like a loon over there. Um, Which adds to the effect, right? So I don't think we said earlier, but his background is an awesome view of the box. It is. But it, when he puts his head in the right position, it just starts to look like he's wearing a sombrero. <laughs> 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 gold around him. <laughs> That's it, perfect. <laughs> yeah. For the beard as well, gives that Jesus look. <laughs> as in Jesus. <laughs> um, Jesus wept. Yes. Jesus. That was, my, that was my quote. Oh, my beard. Nice. Um, I don't know if you started drinking yet, but you definitely should, because tomorrow is Chris's birthday. Hey! Yes. Happy birthday, Chris. Not for you, you listening, because you're a week behind. But yeah. for us recording, <laughs> it's tomorrow. And, and how old are you going to be, Chris? Oh, oh, I'm going on for a young 40. <gasps> the big 4-0. Welcome to obsolescence. You are now technically out of the running, Chris. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but you, 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 you can join us in the hinterlands. I was going to say, he got his birthday wish. Or oh, wish I could have a, you know... Big party, no. Wish I could just stay indoors and have no one visit me <laughs> at all. <laughs> it's his perfect birthday tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> oh. and, uh, so I thought 40 was the new 20, wasn't it? Oh, totally. It's to we, us. We've, got, we've got so are. much, surely. <laughs> yes. 
so much to look forward to this year. <laughs> and we do still all act like children and play computer games yeah. and do, do stupid shit like podcasting. So it definitely is. And that podcast is a young man's game, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't world, sound though. too bad. Obsolescence is good. There's far less pressure on you. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like I said to Claire, when Claire turned 30, I said to her, just be grateful that BBC Three are no longer aiming shows at you. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have to feel insulted. <laughs> um, yes, so we have gone back to the 1987 classic, and this is a classic. Mm. Oh, it is. Um, I used to love this. I think this is one of the films that always stood out for me as a horror fan because it was one of the the quintessential um, horror characters, like the horror icons. Mm. There were yeah. very few that have been added uh, sort of in the last 50 years or whatever to the sort of solid pantheon of the universal type creatures. And I think, you know, Mike Myers, Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger and Pinhead are possibly mm. Pumpkinhead for me. I think are the ones that are the monsters that have really managed to to stay part of the kind of zeitgeist, as it were, and be a. They're like the modern pantheon, and it's and it's curious because I mean it is essentially it's the eighties that produces them. Mm. Yeah, those mm. ones that get mentioned in the same breath as, like you say, Dracula and Frankenstein. Uh, you know, which is uh, which is coming from a completely different end. Mm. Because they, they were iconic through the books and then the films sustained it. Yeah. But these all came from, yeah. And there's, I think the only, the only one I've, I think there's some others sort of that seem to get added, but not all the time. Leatherface, Chucky. Yeah. You mm. know, but, but they're definitely the sort of second tier. Yeah, yeah. Ones. It's Freddie, Jason, Michael Myers and Pinhead. And it's curious because Pinhead sort of like actually stands quite, certainly in certainly in this one stands apart, I think, from those other characters. Yeah, mm. you know. Oh, so um, yeah, so so Pinhead, I absolutely knew of, very iconic, even though I'd never seen the film. Mm. But I was surprised that he wasn't actually in it that much. No, they're very sparingly used, and mm. that's the thing. They're in the film, the later films, more. I think. Oh, uh, okay. As I remember, but yeah, that's that. That is, it's a bit like the the Ghoulies movies. Like, mm. remember that those very iconic characters, and then when you watch the film back, they're almost secondary it's... to the story. They're not mm. really mm. driving force. They're, but they're I, I guess. But yeah. And, and so this was, I suppose, a, an introduction to them through the story of someone else. I, I mean, I don't know if the rest of the films are about someone in particular, because um, I guess this one was mostly about Frank. Hmm. Well, the, I mean, strangely enough, and this is, this is a testament, I think, to it as a film that differs in many ways from a lot of other horror, hmm. is... Uh, watched it with Claire. Claire Claire enjoyed. And so the next night we actually watched number two. Mm. Because I was able to say, you do get, because certainly those first two, you get a continuation of the story. Mm. Okay. And Clive Barker's vision for it was that Julia was the monster. And she would be the one who continued to be the main driving force mm. through it 
And I mean, even though you get you get more of Pinhead and the Cenobites in the second film, but again, they're almost like a force of nature. Mm. Mm. They're they're more like the situation rather than something that's driving it. They're like, you know, like they're the fire in the towering inferno, or they're like the earthquake that causes people to be separated from their family or whatever like that. They're it's not, not really, evil, really. They, yeah. they didn't mean to be bad. They just got caught yeah. up, yeah. just in mm. their nature. Well, that, like that's Freddy the thing. Kruger, who sort of is who's reveling yeah, in it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. is that well? As Claire, as Claire said, it's ba- it's almost like they turn up and do their job. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, but there's no, <laughs> yeah. Whereas yeah, I'm going to say the same. Yeah, it's that you've called them. They've come and done what you asked them to do. Like they're mm. not the bad guys. They're doing what you have requested ultimately. But yeah, you just don't quite bargain for what you've requested. <laughs> yeah. And really, you know, the the monstrous aspects of it are Frank and Julia. Oh, mm. definitely. Mm. You know, and uh, I will I will have to put this in here. Uh, apparently, when they were making it, one of the uh, I think it was one of the makeup ladies uh, said that they should rename the film "What Some Women Will Do for a Good Fuck." <laughs> so, so that was one of the surprises. Was I didn't realise it was so much about sex and bondage gone. Horribly wrong, or, or mm. horribly right, depending on what you've you not read much want. Clive Barker, have you, Chris? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, there, there you <laughs> So, yeah, that, that was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> it's, I mean, certainly, I know that he, from what I gather, and this is like an interesting thing, there's I, I cannot recommend enough to anyone who's into what, what you're interested in. <laughs> <No. laughs> Just shoving needles through your belly. Yeah. You know. Oh, God. Yeah. And the only trouble is you have to sit down to pee. Sprinkler effect. But, um, nice. No, the, um, there's a documentary called Leviathan. And it's, uh, and this is something that will come up a bit later. It's from the same people who did You're So Cool, Brewster, the Fright Night um, yeah. uh, document, like making of documentary which is again like a huge long thing uh and leviathan the the leviathan documentary is i don't know like the the dvd i've got of it is around about four hours long Mm -hmm. there's cut down versions of it that i think you can i think they're available on like netflix or prime or something you know they're, they're around but yeah this this sort of but it just goes so in depth with it and it's it's just so fascinating and I really recommend those as um, uh, like to anyone who's interested in Hellraiser who's not seen those. They are they're like the what's the what's the one with um, Nightmare on Elm Street? Sleep no more. Uh, never sleep again. Never sleep again. That's it. Yeah, it's like that turned up to eleven or the uh, <laughs> Fear the Moon, Beware the Moon, the the one on American Werewolf. Yeah, there's some great mm. horror documentary like documentaries specifically about the films out about certain films out there. But in that, they mentioned that the original people who were meant to do the music on this were Coyle. And Coyle were uh, Peter Christopherson from Throbbing Gristle and a guy called John Balance. And they knew Clive Barker. And they were, but um, Clive Barker basically, I think, went round to their house once and was leafing through. Um, uh, Peter Christofferson's essentially his wank stack 
of like S&M magazines and was like, what the <laughs> fuck is all this? And that's, I think that's kind of where it's all born from or certainly where the Cenobites are born from. It's like these extreme uh, like S&M and bondage magazines that Peter Christopherson had. Um, and they were originally meant to be doing the music and then that was one of the places where, one of the few places where the, the, um, the studio sort of stepped in and said they wanted to use someone else. And even though I absolutely adore Coil, and I've got, they, they released the demos of what they were going to do for Hellraiser, mm. um, which they're, they're just like the electronic versions because they were going to fully orchestrate them and everything. But the Christopher Young score for this is so embedded in so, like, as part of the film. It's amazing. You know, the the yes. opening theme when it comes on is just... I, I actually made a note of it. It's one of those things. It's it, If somebody says to me, what's the theme to Hellraiser, I couldn't tell you. But as soon as it comes <laughs> on, it, it draws you in so hugely right at the beginning. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think they keep that theme all the way through. So although the later films get pretty shoddy, I think, if I remember correctly, they kind of keep that theme later on. They, they keep some of it in, but... Christopher Young did the only actually did the music for the first two, hmm. and the second one is unique in that he actually builds on that theme, and you get a more like more expansive stuff. But it's not just oh yeah, that was Pinhead's music and that was Julia's music or anything. Yeah. There's a lot he puts so much sort of into it that those those first two films are sort of are incredibly. I mean, that is the thing I would I would have to say is, is watch number two, mm. you know, if even if you don't bother with any of the others, but you know, watch number two because that, you, that genuinely, this story. you you get you get Julia's story certainly because mm. after that they sort of they then concentrate more on Pinhead, mm. um, which is in no way a bad thing, but because it, it, it's unusual because, like you say, I mean, I think I think it's I think they're in seven minutes of this film. Like of an hour and a half is, you know, mm. they, they actually only, Pinhead and the other Cenobites only feature on screen for about seven minutes. Mm. Then they have a slightly expanded role in the second film. The third, the third film is Pinhead unleashed into the world, essentially. So he's not mm. part of hell, um, which is uh, an interesting thing because they do have uh, a lot of new Cenobites in number three and they're all a bit poo. Because uh, you've got like a guy who's a DJ, so he gets CDs rammed into his head, mm. and there's a guy who's a cameraman. So there's a big was there like a merchandising. Uh, mm. I, know, I think here. I think <laughs> there was possibly that, but I think I think it was also just that there was possibly less imagination going into the designs. But I love the fact again; it's one of those things when you get steeped in the mythos of something and you sort of read other fans and stuff like that is all the, the the Cenobites as we see them in the first two films are created by the strange diamond god Leviathan who is essentially a big lighthouse full of sorrow who sits at the heart of a labyrinth and he creates the Cenobites that we see so you've got Chatterer and Butterball and the female Cenobite and then in the third film it's Pinhead who's creating these Cenobites and it's just basically, he's not got as great an imagination. <laughs> it's and like he's it, away and he's left it in the, yeah. uh, the gym yeah. hands and... And he's the yeah. son of the CEO who's a bit... Yeah, but yeah. 
and it's, yeah. I, th I think there's even, even in the third, third film, there is a line of dialogue where he says shadows of my former troops. Yeah. About these sort of slightly rubbish centipodes. <laughs> um, fourth film, definitely watch just because it's great. Anything after that, yeah. they sort of peter out and a lot of them were basically a bit like, um, is it Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was originally written without Freddy? Yes. And yeah. then they mm. said, oh, it could be a Nightmare on Elm Street film, so they put Freddy in it. That's pretty much what happens after that, is anyone who comes up with like a halfway interesting script in which someone possibly ends up going to hell. Add Hellraiser uh, to it. They add it. They, sells they, a bit they, more. Yeah. And, and it goes back to the same thing where Pinhead's hardly in them. Mm. And so a lot of it really doesn't bear much reflection on, um, you know, on... Sort of, them all when they are all absolutely dire after the... Mm. There's, we did watch the half of the fourth one following this evening. So we watched Hellraiser earlier. We had mm. about 45 minutes. So we went and put the fourth one on. But Bloodline. Just, yes, but we just watched the 15-minute um, segment, which is the creating of the Lament configuration. So, yeah. So it ignored all the the Hellraiser in space, and we just watched the going back to the uh, the strange French occultists who built the box, which is yeah amazing. And and again, I've I've read I've read the script of that one, and there should that should be again it should be slightly better hmm. than how it comes out, and that seems to be a lot of the problem with it. There's even because they did what was it so. Doug Bradley, who plays Pinhead, turned up for for the first eight, wow. which is loyalty, if nothing else. That's so, that on. I mean, that's yeah. A, yeah. A... Round of applause for that. Yeah. But um, but then yeah, then they did. Uh, I mean, there's Hell World, which has Lance Henriksen in it and still manages oh. to be fucking shit. Yeah, you know, which is a, such a shame. But it's such a piffly sort of crappy version of it. Deader. That's not bad. Inferno. I still like Inferno, but I don't think it's to everyone's taste. Hmm. Um, then you've got Hellseeker, where Kirsty turns up again, but that's that's like sort of like a crap version of Inferno, and most people think Inferno's crap. <laughs> so that's like you know that. But then then finally you get you get to, what is it Revelations, in which uh, basically by then. They did it to retain the rights. Yeah, that's right. So oh. they rushed it through, and it was a—they never really. Wow. Yeah. So they didn't write it, a script or anything. No, really, just... no they—they they got the guy. Oh wow! They got a, basically the the guy who sort of has been holding the flag for um, Hellraiser, like trying to keep it going or yeah. keep it good, is a guy called Gary Tunnicliffe who. Is the makeup artist from I think I think he's from Hell on like the third one onwards. Yeah, he was doing the makeup. He did a he did a little short film which is worth tracking down called No More Souls, and in that he basically, as he put it, he made a fan film. Uh, he said, "Okay, it's slightly different in that I'm a fan who works in special effects and has actually worked on Hellraiser films, but I'm a fan foremost." And so he made this little fan film and basically he played Pinhead because it was that lower budget that he was like, 
I only know one English person and that's me. <laughs> so I'll, I'll do Pinhead and it's basically meant to be, it's set, it's only, I think it's like six minutes or something like that. It's really short, but it's set um, after a nuclear holocaust. Mm-hmm. And it's basically the, the sort of denizens of hell with like Pinhead there basically like, well, we don't have anything to harvest anymore. And it's him sort of reflecting on the fact that there's nothing left to do. And essentially he tops himself. Yeah, interesting. But that then sort of, so loads of people are then like, this guy, Gary Gary, uh, Tunnicliffe, um, he's like really good and he's done this short film. So they stuck it on one of the DVDs. Mm. Um, and apart from pissing Doug Bradley off because he was like, well, why didn't you fucking ask me to play Pin It? Oh. He's like, because like, it's a fan film, you live in England? We were in LA and I was doing it at the weekend for nothing. So, because basically, yeah, he made it on like a few grand of his own money, like purely his own money. And, um, but then, yeah, so they said to him, oh, well, you know, you've done this. You know what you're doing, didn't you? So do you want to do the next film? And he was like, oh. fuck, yeah. He writes, he writes Hellraiser Revelations. It's actually, when you read his script, is pretty good. It's like a, it's nicely done and it feels a lot like the a throwback to one of the originals, like to the first film or maybe the second where there's a lot more mystery to it. And there's a lot more driven by sort of mystery and stuff like that. Uh, and then he got the job of doing special effects on one of the screen films, couldn't direct it. So, and they needed to do it in a hurry. So they just got some bloke to do it. Uh, it went wrong. Pinhead's a uh, short little fat bloke who they had to overdub um, and it's just piffle. So I kind of feel sorry for him that that happened. But then he did Hellraiser Judgment, which while not being perfect, is actually an interesting addition like towards the end of it, I think. Um, I think I actually, I think you, I think, I think it was you who first told me about it, Lee, but yeah, I don't know if you've watched it yet. Judgment, the one with... No. Ah, oh, right, because it's it's weird in that it's... I mean, it's not great. It's sort of... There are sort of certain things lacking, but it does add a lot more interesting mythos to it, and you get, like, this other version of... It's like hell has different divisions. So there's the well, Stygian... I yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but there's this this lot and they're called the, the the what is it the stygian council or something like that and it's basically a whole different area of hell where you get sort of read into and punished and things like that right. and it uh, and the guy who plays pinhead in that is a guy called paul t taylor and he actually does a fairly good job of it he really really because he i think he was like sort of he was brought into it and he said he based his performance on Peter Cushing in Star Wars mm-hmm. was how he sort of, and it was like, that's a bloody good take because yeah. Doug Bradley has that sort of mm. classical actorly sort of thing to, but yeah, so that's the, that's the, that's the series in a nutshell. Sorry. Excellent. So maybe so, we should discuss the original. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so can you tell me a bit more about Pinhead? Like why is he the leader and who does he answer to and how did he get created? Ooh. In, well, film, I think. It? It's it's at the start of you get some of the answers in two, 
Mm. And then you get names and things like that in number three. Uh, And essentially there's this sort of thing, and this is also extending out into some of the Hellraiser comics and things like that, which were all Clive Barker approved. Mm -hmm. Uh, He wrote some of them, but also he was very sort of keen to keep them uh, sort of, you know, in, in check or in line or whatever like that. And there is an element whereby you, your position as a Cenobite relates to, you know, what you could bring from real life. Yeah. And okay. so, and um, it turns out that Pinhead was uh, a, a British Army captain, Captain Elliot Spencer. Well, who, then, heard a nasty accident with a fox. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. He was, he ha- no, he had, um, you know those things for cutting uh, boiled eggs into slices? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, he had two of them. Uh, oh, hell of a mess. Um, but yeah, and, and actually there's, because um, this is sort of going back to, Clive Barker was sort of writing, he started off doing plays and prose before he moved into directing. And mm. in one of his short films, there's actually a, there's a, a board of nails. Mm. Like it's divided up into a grid, nails at each intersection. And he used, he sort of filmed a lot of stuff in negative and would sort of about the way the light passage would go through it. And so the shadows become light beams and things like that. Mm. And Doug Bradley, who is in, what the the short film that that's in as well he was like uh, you know he, when he first saw the concept design of pinhead he was like oh right so that's this thing that you were using anyway but you've just translated it onto the human onto a human head um but yeah there's there's and again that's why i would recommend if even if you don't watch any more watch hellbound because the second one because it does give you slightly more insight Oh, there's a few more questions as well, but you basically, mm. and you find out that the, because I, I think that's the thing is, uh, that's one of the things that happens as well with the later films is they seem to just, de- they decide that it's hell and it's possibly not. I, I thought it was hell, maybe because of the name, but mm. yeah, it wasn't clear what else it might be. But yeah. the backstory written kind of afterwards, so has it been sort of filled in, or did Clive Barker always mm. have this big idea of the world and how it fitted? I, th- I think he always he always had the idea that this was like some sort of, this was some other world. Mm. So whether you want to call it a dimension, because essentially I think that was that would be how you would interpret hell mm. or heaven, is that they would be a different dimension yeah, to what so you're on. I was going to say um, that at one point Frank says this box is a gateway to either heaven or hell. Yeah. I'm assuming yeah. it never takes you to heaven. But also well, he's, he liked pain and bondage and mm. so on. So he said the pleasures that they um, yeah. created well, were I mean, beyond. Or... I mean, Frank's just a smutty shagger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is that, yeah. He, he was just searching for the greatest highs yeah. and that happened to be pain for him because well, he's messed up in some way. Um, and what, what, So when he bought the box off that guy, he was just looking for something else to... Yeah, he's looking for another... Than satisfy him. Yes, yeah, another kick. 
Mm, okay. And similar, and similarly, I mean, although they sort of play it down a bit as it because of how things work in the third film, mm. is you get the impression that that's what's that's what's driven uh, Elliot Spencer to find the box and solve the puzzle is because you know in like sort of I think sort of Doug Bradley said that his in his head it was like well it's that thing you've been this uh, this army captain who's been involved in like really sort of bloody wars and stuff and just real absolute horrors. Mm. But you've also, you know, traveled the world and been there, done that. And sort of, so you're looking for the next kick or next sort of unusual thing, next thing to try. Mm-hmm. And similarly, I mean, that's what it appears to be with Frank and then, or not only that, but also Frank, I think the interesting thing as well is it's almost like Frank appears to be a sadist. Mm. Because he is definitely, yeah. he definitely gets off on hurting. fucking fucking with people and yeah. hurting them, you know, mm. mentally and whatever like that. And it's yeah. almost like it's like a dom accidentally booked in to become a sub. Yeah, <laughs> and sort of like it's like, hang on, I don't know, no, don't do that, yeah. you know. And but on a sort of dimensional, mm. horrific scale, and actually that's. that's that's the other line that they use as well is because like you said, it's a gateway to heaven and hell. And then Pinhead uses the line demons to some angels to others. Yeah. Mm. And so there's presumably people who they turn up and it's bloody lovely. (laughs) (laughs) But essentially it might be booking the wrong room at the torture garden. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So we dived into the film itself because we, we love it and it's very easy to do. Um, so, but it, with it being your first viewing, Chris, what did you make of it as a whole? Like, did you enjoy it? What did you, what stood out for you? Yeah, so, so I did. I, I thought it was a good story, and so I, I didn't expect it to be quite so focused on the people and and Frank and their relationships. I also didn't expect um, there was elements of comedy with the husband. Oh, Larry. His name, Larry, yes. Uh, um, so, yeah, yeah, no, it was, there was a lot of entertainment, but also the the profound idea of hell and heaven and pleasure and pain. You know, I thought they um, touched on a lot of that. But that's why it, it, it did, yeah, I, I definitely wanted to learn more about who the Cenobites were and Pinhead and, and their role. and 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 the box as well, like why why the box is the gateway and why the guy keeps selling it to people. Mm. Um, maybe it's just to make money. Yeah. Why do people keep <laughs> selling heroin? You know. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I suppose. But and the um, guard, I don't think the guardians ever really explained, as I remember, who's a, yeah. That's one thing that never comes back but in you, any of the films. Actually, the scene in the pet shop. She was like, all right, so massive beard, stupid hat, eating uh, So he's a hipster, way yeah. before hipsters. Back in 1987, that's quite yeah. impressive. That's a... <laughs> Hashtag hipster before hipster. Exactly, <laughs> yes. But yeah, I thought I might have missed something about him, but obviously not then. He, he just turns into that um, big monster. skeleton dragon. Yeah, he's yeah. yeah. be the guardian who, who follows the box and returns right. to Back, mm. so no matter where it ends up, is always the impression I got. 
he returns it back to somewhere that it can be passed out back to round to the next. Okay. But yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you, Chris. Like, it's a fantastic film, and it's wonderful as its own on a standalone thing. Mm. But like you say, there are so many elements of it that you want them to to actually explain, and they do in the later films. So although the, the yeah. film, as Adam was saying, aren't always aren't always great, at least for the first four. It's nice to fill in all the build. parts that you want to know. So they do tell you where the box from, why mm. it's the gateway. It does tell you how the uh, how the layers work and where they come from with the vibe. Okay. Um, yeah, and it does flesh out the lore a lot more. So the first one mm. is more like like a ghost story. Like we said before, if you if ghosts were real and you actually saw one, you would just see your haunting. You wouldn't necessarily know what had happened in the past to create that ghost and where it came from mm. and why it followed. And and it's the same with this. It's, it's a very small encapsulated, it's the story of Frank. And yeah, yeah. very small crossing with them. And mm. then because people are obviously obsessed with the Cenobites and that whole yeah. fantastic idea of it being an entire different dimension. And yeah, and they really expand on that moving on. Um, yeah, okay. and I agree with Adam. Like the first four are, are definitely worth watching. Um, mm. I think Adam's I, <laughs> well, no first four, first four. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. I th- I think also I mean the one thing that sort of comes up with this uh, is a is a big part of this is friendship in terms of a lot of Clive Barker's uh, friends are involved, sort of like as mm. the films go on. One of whom is a guy called uh, Pete Atkins, who then who is the author of uh, two, three, and four. So, mm. um, yeah, he's 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 the writer for two, three, and four, and obviously he, like I say, he's a friend of Clive Barker's, so he's kind of got him on tap to give him more of the outlay of what you know what his ideas were where these things were coming from and stuff like that and then i think that just kind of gets lost into uh, in in the sort of certainly sort of the the ones where doug bradley is still pinhead certainly hmm. uh they get far they get bogged down into their like punishment f- films not in not in a torture porn sort of sense, but it's like that's what the Cenobites are. They're really quite basic, sort of. Oh, you've been bad, so we're going to do things to you. Whereas the sort of the place of, like you say, Chris, the place of perversity that it comes from gets lost. Mm. And again, I wonder if that is something because people, you know, is that you know, something that a lot of the studios or whatever have found a bit too much. Because, mm. um, so, I mean, that's the thing is essentially, I mean, it is a very, um, you know, the, 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 the heart of this, the heart of the first one is revolving around a very fucked up relationship mm. yeah. between Julia and Frank and Larry. And Kirsten, mm. you know, it's, yeah. it's just a, that sort of one family unit. Um, and it's sort of, yeah, there's a, a lot of, um, you know, it's, it's quite sort of fucked up in that sense. Whereas I think that, like I say, the later ones all seem to just be like, sort of like, 
oh look here's a person being bad doing bad things and then <laughs> they'll come along and punish them and it's like mm. but and I mean that even down to that I mean okay there is there is a line in 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 part two there is a line where basically someone gets a uh, a, a mute girl who has like who is like uh, uh, has emotionally shut down she's in a mental asylum um but all she does all day is solve puzzles so someone mm. gives her the box to solve on their behalf mm. and then when the cenobites show up they don't take the girl because the t- and they say uh it's not hands that summer summon us it is desire mm. and so they go for the person who wanted the box open not specifically the person who opened the box. That's good. Yeah, but that's the nearest they get to good, because, I mean, all you've got, like, mm. with Kirsty, Kirsty opens the thing. Mm. Hang on, I'm just going to yeah. switch the lights on. It's end of sort of just gradually disappearing into the box. <laughs> <laughs> so that was but, the um, By the end of the episode, you will have been yeah. inspired <laughs> by the puzzle. But I should be completely consumed. Yes. But... Uh, the, the other thing I was going to say is that I, I was a little bit worried to begin with that the effects wouldn't have aged well, but actually they were seriously impressive. Still, definitely um, incredible. You know, uh, like most of it was Frank probably. being uh, not much flesh, and then when he gets formed in the first place, it's still very creepy. Oh, that that sequence, that like reanimation mm, sequence, yeah. is just brilliant. Yeah. Um, that horrible the, howl is his top half is mm. above the floor and he makes that oh. that is horrific mm. yeah but uh, and again there's there's certain elements to it for example uh, I mean obviously one of the one of the things that is a shame about the film is that initially it was set in England mm. um, mm. and then for some reason they just dubbed everyone apart from I, I, say, I have got a note of that yeah I was like right so it was shot in Barnet in North London mm. everybody has got Dollis to... Hill yeah but the thing is they sound like Americans trying to do English accents and I was like because like her boyfriend on off boyfriend uh, Kirsty's mm. boyfriend yeah some scenes he sounds like he's trying to sound English and then obviously sounds like he's not bothering and I'm just like well yeah and it was the same with the dinner party. So it's like, all right, so mm. they've moved from LA to London where they're now having a massive dinner party with all of their American friends in North London. Yeah. Well, not only that, but also like the second film, which follows on almost immediately. It's like within the next sort of 48 hours. Mm. And by then, there, there are policemen involved, but they've got like, they're American policemen. They've got the sort of cap, <laughs> the peaked cap, and they've got guns. Oh, dear. And it's so you kind of you know there are sort of people who have this sort of is it a uh, alternate country like an alternate England where that was the case, but I mean and also there's the bit where she walks along the fucking docks. Yeah, no, exactly. And okay, and okay they don't look like that now. Oh, but, but yeah, but it is you know it's clearly the London dock. Yeah. But yeah, they they like. Um, and but yeah, I think that was one of the that was one of the again one of the few interferences by the studio is that they dubbed a lot of people so that they would sell it to an American audience. Idiots. Even though they can't understand th- British. <laughs> well, they they even keep the dialogue in yeah. when he's saying to Julia, "Oh, I thought you'd be happy to be back, like Larry saying, I thought you'd be happier to be back on your old stamping ground." 
Yeah. And it's like, well, that makes piss all sense if they've moved to <laughs> yeah. another place in America and she's the only Brit in the yeah. film. But the other thing is, yeah, when, so when you go down into the train station and she's saying about Julia being frigid and the boyfriend mm. says, not all of us Brits are like that, in an American accent. And I'm like, yeah. oh, a bleeding minute. Choose a it's, site, guys. Choose yeah, it's bloody ridiculous. Um, but... This does lead to one thing. Obviously, Brother Frank is equally badly dubbed. Hmm. Uh, but the reason that Brother Frank is badly dubbed is because a different guy plays Frank as skinned Frank. Yes. Mm. And what Clive Barker would do is he would hire much thinner actors. Anytime, and people being skinned turns up quite a lot in Hellraiser films. <laughs> um, and whenever they do, they hire someone who's much thinner to portray them so they can build out Never. the structure because otherwise it would just bulk out too much and it wouldn't look particularly realistic and actually in terms of sort of pinhead becoming the icon that was i think that was originally what they wanted to go with the poster is they wanted frank Mm. as the poster but as they said you got like you say you got frank which is a skinless image which is sort of like yeah it's it's sort of gross Mm. or it's a bit shocking but it's not as engaging an image yeah. as Pinhead is. Mm. So again, Pinhead becomes like the poster boy, even though they're not the main thing of the film particularly. Exactly. You know, the, less, but they're definitely the takeaway thing is the Cenobites. Like, you know, as mm-hmm. you said, Chris, like they're the thing that piqued your interest. And like, okay, so I've got, I get this story of him being messed up and being reconstituted through all these people who he sticks his fingers in the back of their neck yeah. sound like somebody finishing a McDonald's milkshake. <laughs> um, That's a good effect though, isn't it? When it yeah, Again, almost. the practical effects in this are mm, pretty yeah. bloody awesome. Yeah, I say mm. that, that him reconstituting out of the ground, obviously I know mm. we've discussed it before, I think it was all done in wax and then melted down rather mm. than... Um, yeah, they did it in reverse. They destroyed, the, they sort of built this, this, the creature and then destroyed it and actually, they even had like they would put wires and string in there, and so as it melted, they'd pull those out so it looked like the mm. veins are creeping in and stuff yeah. like that. It's a real. It, there's a lot of imagination in there. Yeah. You know, because because essentially, it is a it's still a very low budget film, really. It also has to be said that the, apparently they did get complaints from the Animal Liberation Front, or you know. Oh. Uh, about like rat cruelty and i was like come on come on guys if you can't tell that they're not real rats <laughs> you want to ask yourself a few rats. questions totally not real rats. <laughs> i'm clearly easily fooled by what the ones nailed to the wall they're not real rats no because you don't because you're technically not allowed to crucify rats for entertainment no just for well, not, not <laughs> <laughs> yeah no the effects and everything in this do i mean even now because obviously when i first had it I had this film in the mid-90s, probably, on a ropey old VHS from Woolworths. Um, but that's what made you buy it, wasn't it? Seeing Pinhead yeah, on the front. Pinhead, yeah. mm. And that was it. Yeah. Yeah. If, if it had been the image of Frank, I'd have been yeah, way less bothered. likely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but even seeing it now in full HD uh, on Shudder, watched it on Shudder, thank you, Shudder, um, yeah, it just looked incredible. Even yeah, now, I was watching we... the Blu-ray, like the Arrow Blu-ray, and again, it doesn't lose anything for that. No. Mm, nice. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you, Adam, uh, obviously mm-hmm. this was originally, Clive Barker wrote this as a short story, The Hellbound Heart. 
Mm. Uh, which I've not read. I don't know if you have, but you've definitely heard a radio play of. Is that yes. Or yeah. I've read. I've read. I've read the. I've read the Hellbound Heart like like years, years and years ago. I read it. A, read it a couple of times, and the the play. The uh, who's that by? It's uh, Baffle Gab who did a play of it with um, Alice Lowe. That's right. Uh, oh. As Kirsty, oh. um, and um, yeah, that's really good. So yeah, but um, so in, in what sense? Like as in differences from the yeah, well, from the I film or. And it's obviously a very short, basic version of the story, but I didn't know whether it just focuses on a small element or if it's just a very confined version of the same story. It's pretty much as the film presents, because it's like a novella. It's like it's not sort of um, it's it's not a short story. It's like about I think it's like maybe a couple of hundred pages. Yeah, so outline. But essentially, it is very. The film sticks very closely to it. Mm. The major difference is that Kirsty, uh, Kirsty's not Larry's daughter. He's called uh, Larry's called Rory in it, mm. um, and not uh, yeah, clearly Kirst- <laughs> no. Uh, but Kirsty's not his. Yeah, Kirsty's not his daughter. Uh, she is uh, someone who he works with, who kind of carries a torch a bit for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, to be honest, I think the film, the relationship in the film makes a bit more sense mm-hmm. because in the book, there's a certain level of, you know, how far would you go for for someone you've just got a crush on, like spying on their missus, yeah, <laughs> you know, because you've lost out in this. And there's so it sort of it has a different motivation in that sense. Um, so I do think, you know, I think the film does the does does that element better the book really has a the one thing that the book brings forward doesn't give you and interesting enough it doesn't give you much more on the cenobites than the film does you again get that level of you know you you know as much as frank explains yeah um but in the book you do get the opening sequence when frank first encounters them and the interesting thing is and again this is like part of the thing where the mythos changes as it goes on but in the book uh frank is basically um he goes back with the cenobites they give him a right good snming uh for ages and then basically as a shriveled husk they leave him stuck in the wall so he is actually there physically in a in a way and it's the, the part of the punishment is being adjacent to the real world without being able to get in, back into it. I see. So they'll come back for you and then fuck you around and do whatever else like that and then just bung you back in the wall and leave you. Oh. And that's kind of how, how and why Frank is, kind, is there. Yeah. Like still within the room. And again, it's something that uh, the films, as the films have gone on and that, that, kind of element of the mythology is not not necessarily been ignored but just kind of it never fleshed out or... yeah they've never sort of expanded like, okay. and then yeah. <laughs> hmm. which which leads me to my hellraiser theory that i've always purported because because a lot of people have this thing where they say especially like the later films where it'll be oh that's not how the box works because it's people trapped in a false reality that t- punishes them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
And I like the idea that maybe this is a misfire. You know, you can have these odd effects and everything. So is the first film not how the box normally works? If you see what I mean. So, and it just so happens that because it's the first time you see it, you assume that's that's how it's meant to go. When actually it could be that there's, there was a problem with this or something went awry. Um, and certainly towards the end when Kirsty's got the box and is just zapping them back into the other dimension. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's a bit of a stretch. Does that not happen in the others? Um, as far as, well, there's, it's weird because it's one of the few film series where there, I mean, ultimately Pinhead is defeated. Mm. I think that's, that's that's interesting. I hadn't actually thought of that, but the difference of those first four films, the first four, the ones I'd really regard as the Hellraiser canon, mm-hmm. Hell, uh, you know, in in one way or another, uh, Pinhead and the forces of that dimension are defeated. Mm. Whereas all the subsequent ones, Pinhead, as he is like the sort of god punishment figure or judge. He doesn't have to be defeated because essentially him showing up is what ends the film. Mm-hmm. And it's like sort of, oh, well, look, this is, and here's the explanation. Oh, it was all because Pinhead's been punishing you. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so after that, they don't really, Pinhead never gets defeated because Pinhead's not actually doing any of the things in it that are bad, if you see what I mean. It's sort of, yeah. Um, he uh, goes back to being just like this false. But but again, I mean, I, I like the fact that, you know, Kirsty is not immune. They still want Kirsty, And yeah. I also like the fact that they renege on the deal. Well, they don't even say agree- they agree to the deal. Yeah, yeah, I like that as well. The fact that he does sort of say, well, let's see, you, you mm. bring it to him and then we'll see what happens. And then they just go, well, we've got you both now, so... Yeah. 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 There was going to be no there's change. No, there's no formal, ha-ha, got you. It's yeah. just it's not, it's not because Kirsty's got some hidden... Well, essentially, it's still Kirsty's curiosity that drives her to open the box. Mm. And it's, it, you know, and that's the thing, is I think they, it can be... If desire is what opens the box, it depends on what you desire. If you desire mm. knowledge of what the box does, that still counts, I suppose. You get it, don't you? I suppose yeah. you get the knowledge mm. of what the box does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you find out in no uncertain terms. Yeah. It's, like, it's like sticking your head in a bear trap. Yeah. <laughs> wonder what this does. You know, we asked the tea killed the cat, as they say. Yes. Which was... Which was a, a phrase I never understood until I owned cats. And then it was like, ah, <laughs> oh, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think all in all, I think we would say for all of us, that is good film, a, yeah. Stood yeah. the yeah. time. I think mm. I've watched it for probably 15 years. But I can remember at the time liking it, and I wasn't sure now why, until obviously we watched it. And I was like, yeah, no, it's, it's the effects stand up. I probably like the bit as well that, you know, Kirsty kind of comes out of it pretty well at the end. It's not the typical, oh, I'm a female in a horror movie. I know, this I is totally like Dirty Dancing. Yeah, pretty much. Funnily enough, that is, some, that is something that Claire said. 
she, <laughs> no, she was just really pleased that Kirsty was like, no, fuck you, and yeah, kick Frank yeah. in the balls. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yes, that's what you do, and then yeah, you run. Exactly. You know, that's, that's sensible. That's what people would do. Watching it in the 90s, it was probably a bit like, this is quite refreshing. This is yeah. it could even be a public information. Well, I mean, certain, certainly in terms of everything, I mean, Kirsty and Julia are the ones who are sort of the more, you know, they're, they're the. Yeah, they're, yeah. Mm. She goes out there, okay, she's doing it for a man, Modern but woman. she goes out, she lures the blokes back and kills them, which is, you know, quite proactive. But she's clearly, I mean, let's face it, she's clearly between her and Larry. Mm. And, and actually, that's, that's a testament as well, because um, what's his name who plays, uh, oh, what's his name who plays Larry? Andrew Robinson. Mm. His, other big, his other big role in a film is that he's in Dirty Harry and he plays yeah. the killer, Scorpio. And mm. Scorpio is a fucking piece of shit. Yeah. There's no scum, Yeah, there's no <laughs> redeeming feature. There's no like charming Hannibal sort of serial killer thing. He is scum. He's not and it's interesting. Then. No, but then it's interesting that when he when he is Frank wearing Larry's skin. Oh, you see the mm. like, Yes, yeah. He really is <laughs> different. You believe yeah. it's Frank. You don't yeah. believe it's Larry. Fantastic mm. actor. Really, yeah. He really is. Mm. It's an incredible performance in this film. Mm. To have that duality of playing, of him having to play himself and someone within him. Yeah. Yeah, mm. and turning it around so, so mm. flawlessly. Yeah. It's fantastic. And I think, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think that's as well, it's just everyone, everyone in it is fucking great. Everyone's a mm. good actor. Yeah. I mean, obviously Doug Bradley is his biggest thing that he did uh, or has done you know i mean he still goes to conventions you can follow his dog on instagram mm. yeah yeah pinhead's dog Aww. um but um uh, but like i say i mean a lot of it is a lot of it is friends of clive barker one of the removal men the younger mm. guy not not the guy who is oh, the one that was here from... when do you ask yeah. here when you're moving furniture God. i know it's a bit much isn't it it was clearly the time because at the point when he goes upstairs and she's hiding in the bathroom and mm. he says to her, are you okay? And she says, I feel sick. And he oh, says, yeah. okay. Get me a says, Can I get you anything? Brandy. Have a brandy. <laughs> what? That, that's, that's old school British medicine though. <laughs> yeah. that's, like, that's like a cup of tea. I ain't going to hold this. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, because of the removal men, one of them is Les from uh, Men Behaving Badly. Yeah. The barman, yeah. Uh, again, dubbed. Um, but also, but yeah, the younger guy is a guy called Oliver Parker, who was who is a mate of Clive Barker's, who was in his theatre company, The Dog Company, uh, who now directs films. He directed like the reboots of St. Trinian's and some of the Johnny English films. And so he's sort of gone on to do all right. But the, and the Cenobites are all, uh, the female Cenobite is actually Clive Barker's cousin. Oh. Uh, she's she's not done many films. A lady called Grace Kirby, but then you've got Butterball and Chatterer, hmm. and Chatterer, and this is uh, here we go. There's a testament to what uh, you know how this is influencing Claire. Is that she was like, it's a bit weird, isn't it? That I find him quite sweet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is like this he's big. He's nervous because he's chattering his teeth. He's like, yeah, it's... <laughs> he's a child in the third one. 
In the second one, yeah, they they, they yeah because they they reveal who everyone was as a human, uh. and yeah, suddenly you find out the Chatterer was a child, which is just just again you're like that's creepy. Yeah. But but they leave it there. You don't get any more <laughs> than that. But yeah, Chatterer and Butterball. Um, but Chatterer is a guy called Nicholas Vince, um, who was. Uh, who again was a friend of Clive Barker's? I believe he knew Coyle. Um, he actually posed. Uh, he posed for um, Clive Barker for uh, uh, when Clive Barker was doing some life drawing. So mm. he just invited Nicholas Vince around and said, uh, "Take your clothes off because I don't know much about art, but I know what I like." <laughs> so, um, but yeah. So Nicholas Vince. Um, but he Nicholas Vince is in uh, Borley Rectory. He plays the one of the the vicar. In the uh, Borley Rectory, you know the one with Free Shearsmith. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, uh, he's in that, and uh, actually, yeah, Doug Bradley and all of them appeared in Nightbreed. In fact, Oliver <laughs> Parker, Oliver Parker, who is the 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 uh, younger uh, removal man, he's uh, Pelequin in Nightbreed, which is like one of the main sort of characters and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, and this is this was news to me today. Is the guy who plays Butterball is a guy called Simon Bamford, again, friend of Clive Barker's. Because uh, I mean, Doug Bradley went to school with Clive Barker, so he's <laughs> known him like years and years and years. Um, but yeah, Simon Bamford um, is uh, the guy who plays Peter Vincent in uh, You're So Cool, Brewster. <gasps> Which also should give you an indication just as, as to quite how much makeup is on Butterball. Yeah, because <laughs> they've turned him into this big fat git, and Simon Bamford is like one of the skinniest buggers you will ever see in your life. And yeah, it's just a bit strange that they decided to uh, to do that. I mean, I, in fairness, I do have to say I think Butterball might be the Friday last thing Cenobite. Yeah, yeah. He's of, the- of all of them, he's got the least sort of yeah, the least. I mean, Chatterer is probably the best looking. Because it's just so odd and so alien. Yeah. Um, eh? Oh, Claire thought I meant that fancy him. <laughs> well, I might fancy him. I might fancy him. I might fancy him. Fit as. <laughs> Fit as that chatterer. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, you wouldn't. You wouldn't go near him anyway. You'd end up Jewish, would you? So. <laughs> but. Um, and also, like when they start, uh, that was another thing is that they sort of in the script they follow specific roles. <coughs> so, like the female Cenobite is obviously Pinhead's lieutenant, and Butterball was meant to be like the surgeon, and Chatterer was an enforcer. And actually, Chatterer was meant to sort of scamper around like a monkey. And so, but but basically, yeah, they stuck him in the bondage gear. And it's like, I can't bend my knees in this. Oh, yeah. No. yeah. I can't see fuck all. He, he has got no eyes, to be fair. That'd be really... Yeah. And that's interesting, because in, in number two, he ends up with eyes. <laughs> um, and uh, they actually cut out a sequence where it was meant to be, uh, he was given eyes as a reward. Oh, like, he sits in a surgeon's chair and, like, gets all things over <laughs> him and he comes back out and he's got a little eye. Oh. So it's almost like, well done on the last caper. <laughs> your eyes, so which is very sweet. <laughs> yeah, 
So I think to round up, mm. uh, yeah, yeah, that's fantastic film. Good film. Yeah. Well, and I have to watch number two. Definitely yes. watch the second one. I think I might uh, mm. make you watch it tomorrow, Jennifer. Mm. Yeah. It is very good. Genuinely, yeah. I mean, I think those first two, and also the other reason to watch number two is uh, Kenneth Cranamer's Doctor Chenard, who oh, is fantastic performance. Yeah, he is. He's there on a par with Doug Bradley for you know brilliant bastardry. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Mm. Uh, Excellent. So next episode, we are going to be covering a. Uh, request that we got on the Zoom chat when we were all uh, Ooh, yeah. having a little mm. waffle last week. Um, Adam Laws, I believe, uh, asked for The Beast Must Die. I, actually, it was Claire who asked for The Beast Must Die because oh, I was telling her about it. And then Adam was very, very enthusiastic very about <laughs> The Beast Must yeah, Die. Right, sorry, yeah. Um, yeah, so The Beast Must Die, uh, the Amicus movie, one of their few movies that isn't an anthology. Mm. Um, but yeah, it is an incredible movie. So thank you very much, Claire, for asking for that. Um, thank you, Claire. Yeah. Okay. Oh, Claire has an Ask Welcome to Horror. Oh, go for it. Um, she's painted the shed pink. Yay! And she, she's thinking about by, uh, putting a sheep outside. Do you think yellow? Was it yellow? I've already bought it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Claire's pissed and she's already bought I it. Think, so I think it's going to look amazing. Nice. Oh, yeah. So Chris thinks it'll look amazing. Oh, yeah. Welcome to horror then. Rather I think, than can it be a pink shed with like glittery red blood dripping down it? I don't know if she'd go for that, but I mean, it's, 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 do you know, it's, 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 it's certainly added something to the garden. I'm quite, in, mm. I'm quite impressed. So, That's a there we go. So well done, Claire. This is welcome to horror endorsed gardening. We like it. There you Look go. Welcome to horror endorsed gardening. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. So next episode we're going to do the beast must die. Uh, if you've not seen it, go out and check it out. It is absolutely first rate. Uh, and make sure you get involved with the werewolf break because that is the best. It's the only film I know with a werewolf break. So what more right, do you yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So thanks ever so much for listening. Uh, don't forget to send in your hashtag ask welcome to horror gardening questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> careful with that. <laughs> yeah. And any other questions, uh, we'll be most glad to receive them either on Instagram or you can comment with them below and someone will probably see them before the episode. Um, otherwise you can email us at info at welcome to um, and thank you ever so much I think we'll probably do following last week another zoom at some point um, yeah. just to give you all the heads up hopefully at some point while we're in lockdown in a couple of weeks maybe we'll get something together and uh, yeah so get yourself some fine booze in get your questions together we did uh, it was mainly just drunken waffling um, <laughs> But we did have a couple of questions we discussed. I was going to try and edit them together and put the episode out. Uh, but with so many people, uh, the audios were very up and down and it would have been hours of work uh, mm. to edit it. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, if we do another one, so if you do have any hashtag ask, welcome to everybody. Make sure you join. So come to see us on Zoom and we'll get, you know, when that's going to happen. Uh, and yeah. I'll watch The Beast Must Die. Good night. No. No. Hi. That was good, wasn't it? Eh?